Welcome to the Answer Religious Era show. My name is Brian Garlock. So glad you could join us today. Uh, if you are tuning in live, we'd encourage you to send your questions in. This is our live Bible Q&A. And so we go live every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern time. If you have a Bible question, you can send those to questions at answeringreligiouserror.com. Again, that's questions at answeringreligiouserror.com or private message us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash answeringreligiouserror. Those are the two best ways to get a hold of us. And if you have a Bible question, now is the time to send those questions in. We do have a, a list of questions, but we will try our best to get to your live questions today. We also have a daily podcast we want to encourage you to tune into. It's uh, on all major podcast platforms. It is called The Daily Answer Podcast with Mark Dunnigan, who is on the show today. And uh, we appreciate all the work he does in uh, producing those shows. It drops a new episode Monday through Friday, 5 a.m. Eastern time. So you can listen to it while you are getting ready or traveling to work. Gives you about 15, 20 minutes of an encouraging uh, word or challenge to your faith so you can grow in Christ Jesus. Well, gentlemen, it's good to see everyone here today and looking forward to our, our study. Let me put my computer on Do Not Disturb because everyone is texting me and private messaging me right now as we are going live. I apologize for that. All right, uh, gentlemen, Brian, Mark, Stephen, Nick, Terry, how are y'all doing? We are doing fine in Alabama. Fantastic. Good deal. Yeah. Why don't you quickly, we haven't done this in a while. Uh, I'll start with me uh, for those who may be new to turning tuning into the show today. Uh, my name is Brian Garlock. I live in Texarkana, Texas, but I preach for the Franklin Drive Church of Christ in Texarkana, Arkansas. So I have to cross the border to uh, worship and, and uh, preach. <laughs> and so uh, if you are interested and you live in my area, uh, then uh, reach out to me. And uh, we'll do our very best to sit down and study with you at your convenience. Brian, where do you live? Where do you work? Yeah, I'm up here in the Portland, Oregon metro area. Specifically, I'm in the city of Hillsboro. And I preach in the little tiny town of Cornelius, Oregon, which is right next door and part of the Cornelius Church of Christ. Mark Dunnigan. I'm everywhere, Brian, but right now I'm in Wesley Chapel, Florida, north of Tampa. Uh, for April 1st, we're heading north, you guys. We're coming out of Florida. We're raring to go. We're coming through Mississippi and Alabama, then into Tennessee and across to like Cookville and Oak Ridge and Chimney Rock, out to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, then up through coastal Virginia and to, to, to see the Christians eventually up in New Jersey and New York and Rhode Island and across the top United States, the Finger Lakes and the Upper P and Wisconsin and back in the Oregon for the summer months and back in the Florida, Lord willing, by December 1st. Hope we see you. On all the right. Way. Well, if you, if you caught all that, then if you live in those areas and you'd like to study with Mark Dunnigan, uh, reach out to him. And Mark, why don't you give your email address? Because we're all on Facebook, but you're not. So what's no, your... no, I'm the last one. Yeah. <laughs> Facebook. Book is keep they're offering me billions of dollars to, to get on, but I am the last person. Uh, Mark W. Dunnigan at gmail.com. Gmail.com. All right, appreciate that, Mark. Stephen Russell, how are you, man? I'm doing great, and I'm up here in Athens, Alabama. And uh, Mark called me and told me he was coming through, and so I made arrangements to not be here uh, <laughs> yes. when he's coming through Athens. Um, but I'm at the uh, Pepper Road Church Christ um, and been here several years. Marshall McDaniel's here with me uh, working uh, with the group here, and uh, we'd love to have you visit us anytime. You can uh, find us on the web at pepperroadchurch.org. 
Appreciate it, man. Nick Greenman. Well, my name is Nick Greenman. I'm the preacher at Christian Home Church of Christ in Butler County, Kentucky. So, Mark Dunnigan, if you have this hankering to when you're in Tennessee to shoot up into Kentucky, uh, hit me up and we can go out and get something to eat for lunch or something. That'd be nice to meet you in person. Uh, so if anybody is in the areas of Central Kentucky, around Butler County, Warren County, that would be Bowling Green, Kentucky, you can get in touch with me at 270-999-2600. Or find me on Facebook, I'd be happy to study with anybody, talk with anybody about the Bible. And, and so good times we live in to be able to do these things That's via cool. the Internet. Yeah, absolutely. Terry? I'm in a little community called Spruce Pine, Alabama. That's right near Russellville, Alabama. I preach at Bell Green. Be happy to have you there. You can look us up on the internet as well. You can contact me at terrywbenton at gmail.com. All right. Appreciate it, guys. All right. This is our live Bible Q&A. Again, you can send your questions in. Questions at answeringreligiouserror.com is the email address or private message us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash answeringreligiouserror. You can also come on the show if you like. Just follow the instructions on YouTube and Facebook descriptions and uh, you'll meet up with our producer and we'll do our very best to get you on the show live if you'd like to ask your question or come on video even. Uh, let's have a word of prayer before we begin and then we'll get started with our show. Our dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for this time that we can come together as brothers in Christ and uh, answer these questions that we have received. We, uh, we appreciate so much everything that you have done for us um, by you giving us the grace that you have so richly bestowed upon us especially through your son, Jesus the Christ. Father, we pray that as we open up our uh, open up our Bibles today, that we will seek the truth and that we will uh, leave our opinions out of these answers for these questions and that we will uh, help the audience, uh, those who are watching, tuning in to uh, be able to grow in faith and have uh, a trusting uh, allegiance to you, Father. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, this is our live Bible Q&A, but first, it is meme time. All right, so this was a meme uh, that was sent in. Uh, it has uh, four blocks here with these guys talking back and forth. Uh, one guy says, with his arms crossed, uh, sarcastically, why, why pray if, if God is sovereign? Um, and I believe, and maybe this uh, panel can uh, correct me, but I, what I, I believe that is he's getting at here is the idea that uh, this definition of sovereignty is that God is in full absolute control. Uh, a determinist would say that God has determined everything that is going to happen and man cannot affect that. And so he's saying, well, why pray if God is sovereign? He's going to do what he's going to do. If it's his will, it will be done. What's the point of prayer? Where the other guy uh, responds, well, why pray if he isn't? And again, the idea is taking that definition of, well, why would you want to pray to a God who is not in control, who uh, cannot handle uh, this world, this universe, and everything that's in it? And so the guy who is uh, mocking the one about why pray if God is sovereign now is kind of backed into a corner, and his life is in ruins, and he is hopeless, as you can see in the last picture, he turns himself over, looks like to maybe drugs, alcohol, uh, as he is hopeless because he serves a God that is not in full control. Uh, Stephen, let's start with you. Let's see what you have to say. We'll work our way up. Well, as you mentioned, this this is about the definition of sovereignty. 
And, um, and so, yeah, um, it's a good question from the standpoint of a determinist. Um, you know, what is the point of prayer? And what the determinist would say, incidentally, is that the point of prayer has nothing to do with God's response, but only uh, as, an, um, as an exercise in changing us, the one who is doing the prayers. So it's, it's to bring us into accordance with his will. And I don't think that that's entirely wrong from the standpoint I do think prayer uh, changes us. But having said that, uh, God indicates multiple times uh, that part of prayer is an expectation of response, um, is um, an answer from God that is not predetermined, but rather that is responsive to the one offering the prayer. And so what you have here, you have sovereignty, uh, as you said, being um, defined as absolute and only absolute and can only be absolute. The Calvinists would say that God cannot even choose to be any less sovereign than completely determinist. Um, well, that is just inconsistent with not just a single scripture, but the entirety of scripture. From the very beginning, God says that he created man um, to have dominion. That is a level of control and sovereignty over creation. And so God can choose to hand over uh, choice and power, uh, dominion to someone else. And he does choose that from the very beginning. Now, having said that, God remains the final word. And that is, I think, the, the misunderstanding in sovereignty. Is his sovereignty always exercised as uh, full and absolute and determinist down to the very last molecule, as some Calvinists would say? Or is his sovereignty uh, one that is uh, in ultimate control and, and has the final word? And I believe the latter of those two uh, is more consistent with everything that we see in scriptures. So this is a clever meme, but it's one that just um, doesn't take into account everything that, that God's word has to say about his power and sovereignty. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mark Dunnigan, go ahead. Yeah, there's just a number of passages. Great comments, Stephen. Uh, there's Jeremiah 18, where God talks about he has plans for a nation, but the nation changes its moral course. So he changes his plans and, and it goes both ways. The same thing is in Ezekiel 18 with the individual, with the sinner. If the sinner repents, um, God, God changes his attitude towards that sinner. If the righteous man goes into sin, none of the deeds that he committed that were righteous are, are remembered. I mean, and then you have passages like Philemon 15, where Paul, an inspired man, says, for perhaps... The runaway slave Onesimus was for this reason separated from you. Well, if if sovereignty is like absolute, there is no perhaps there. In fact, there's no if, and there should be no if in scripture, if that's the case. If everything's been predetermined right down to every single individual action. I really like something Stephen remind us, reminded us of, and I think and I think he pointed out where the Calvinist forgets this. And that is, at, at the end of the day, Brian, all loose ends will be tied up, and no one's going to get away with anything, and there's going to be justice and, and, and et cetera, and God's going to deal with everything. 
but I think the Calvinist demands or almost wants God to be dealing with everything at this moment right now. Like there can't be a deviation right now. There, can, there, there, there can't be anybody deviating from God's plan right now, period. There, there can be no little deviation. And the thought is that God's going to deal with all deviations at the end. And from time to time, he does judge in this life. But, uh, man, I, when I look at this meme, one of the things that crosses my mind, if, if God has already determined who's going to heaven, who's going to hell, and it has nothing to do with the choice that you make, wow, it's not only why do you pray, it would be why even share the gospel with anybody. Those are my thoughts. All right. uh, Terry. Well, I think of Mordecai asking uh, or telling Esther that if she doesn't stand up and do something, that uh, she she might be the one that God would be using here. Uh, the implication is who knows but what you've come to the kingdom, but for such a time as this. And that was the occasion where Haman wanted to wipe out the Jewish people. And Mordecai understood God has options, but you might be one of those options. So his sovereignty was not called into question. He will, he will bring um, salvation to this nation because he has a lot of promises that he's going to fulfill yet. And so he is going to spare this nation. Uh, Mordecai knows that. He knows that because God has stated his plan and he knows that God has the power to keep his plans alive. But at the same time, uh, uh, Esther may be in that position where God could use her to make a uh, turnaround of events. And, and so he says, who knows, but what you come to the kingdom, but for such a time as this. So he knows the sovereignty of God is going to make it work out, but he doesn't know what channel uh, he's going to work through. And uh, so it is with prayer. We may not know how God is going to work things out. And we don't, may not even know the timing when he's going to work it out. But we know that it works. In fact, Paul in uh, his, I would say Paul knows more about the sovereignty of God than, than uh, this meme writer might know. And what he says is that in Ephesians chapter three, he says that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. He's able to do that because he's sovereign uh, and he's able to do more than we, th we ask or think and far above all that we ask or think. So the prayer works and James says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man work availeth much. It does work and it works much. It, uh, it avails much. Therefore, prayer in the concept of the early disciples who knew more about the sovereignty of God than perhaps modern, uh, modern people might, might uh, give them credit. They knew that prayer works uh, and he, it works because God is able to choose different ways and options and use his own wisdom and power to work out the plan in his timing and in the best way possible so that everything is going to work out fine for the Christian who, uh, who trusts in the sovereignty of God. Those are my thoughts. Hey, appreciate it. And Brian, I think you're going to be the last one. 
Yeah, just let me kind of uh, restamp some a couple of things. First of all, anytime a listener hears the word sovereign, you're probably talking to a Calvinist. Uh, we've kind of hinted around that, but let's just say that's one of those code words that the Calvinist will always use. And what a Calvinist means by sovereignty is that man does not have free will. That's uh, typically what they mean. It's worth it's worth your time to take a minute to study what that word is used in the Bible. It's not used very often, uh, but the idea there. So just as a side note, just so you know, if you saw a meme and you saw somebody talk about sovereignty or God is sovereign, uh, take uh, take the knowledge there that it's probably a Calvinist that you're chatting with. All right. So Brian is uh, off for just a moment, and uh, we'll go ahead and bring up the next question here. Um, and Colton, you want to bring that up there for us? Why is Zerubbabel called the son of Shealtiel in Matthew 1, but called the son of Padiah in First Chronicles chapter 3? All right. Um, let's, uh, let's see. Let's start off with Brian on this one. You know, and I uh, was desperately hoping you would not start off with me because um, uh, this is a, a more complicated question in some ways than others. I mean, it's always easy to say that we point out that in the Bible, sometimes people have uh, different names. And, you know, uh, we see all through the New Testament, just comparing our lists of the apostles, we see different names listed there as well. Oftentimes, genealogies aren't meant to represent a totality of uh, father to son relationships, but we can we know that sometimes generations are skipped. Um, Jesus is called the son of Joseph in Matthew chapter one, and yet Jesus is really the stepson of Joseph. So we know the genealogies aren't meant to be taken in a way uh, of, a, of a specific bloodline father to son relationship, but oftentimes they're more meant to convey an ancestor, an identifiable ancestor uh, to identify as Matthew chapter one might say, Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Uh, those kinds of things there. Um, I'm kind of looking forward to what the other answers are. Um, and I know some people have done a little bit better work on this. I'm looking forward to hearing that. So, yeah. So um, one of the things to note about Zerubbabel in particular is that he shows up in both of the genealogies of Jesus provided by the Gospels. So you've got um, Matthew um, giving a genealogy that comes down through David and, uh, and comes down through Solomon, the son of David. And you have Luke's uh, genealogy, which comes down through, the, uh, through Nathan, the son of David. Um, you, you follow those genealogies, and it looks like they converge at Zerubbabel. And then they break up again, and then they, of course, reconverge at Jesus and so uh, one of the things that we um, that is that Zerubbabel ends up being highlighted because of that. Well, of course, if you go back to the story, um, to the, the chronology back um, of when Zerubbabel's living, he's living during the return from captivity. And Zerubbabel is the governor who brings Israel back from captivity in order to rebuild the temple. He's in that first wave of return uh, accounted for us in uh, the book of Ezra. So he ends up being very important. Here's this man in the line of David who is leading people out of captivity to return and rebuild the temple. Well, um, the fact that the two genealogies would converge on this man 
who is so representative of, of, you know, restoring God's people and a rebuilding of the temple, I think is very telling when we come forward to Jesus. Now, what does that have to do with this question? Well, the, the question, um, and Brian already dealt with this, but genealogies are not only concerned with telling us every single person in the line, but it's sometimes they're highlighting uh, the important persons in the line as we go along. And I think that's what's happening in Matthew and Luke is they may not include every single person in the line, but they're making sure the ones that you need to know, for instance, David, very important, um, and Zerubbabel, very important, are included in that line. Additionally, I would say for them to converge, you've probably got to have something going on, but you definitely have to have something going on. All right. So Zerubbabel has to be uh, able to be the son of uh, Shealtiel or has to be the son of someone who, who attaches to both lines. How can that happen? Well, there's a number of different explanations. It can be uh, through an uncle, through liberate marriage. It can be um, th through marriage. In other words, um, you know, that it could be that the mother comes from this side and the father comes through this side and Shealtiel is what brings them together. And so there's just a number of different ways that we could work that out. First Chronicles is much more interested in giving us a detailed picture of who is who, right? It's not necessarily giving us what we might say is a theological picture, but rather the more genealogical picture of where these people come from. Because at that time, at that First Chronicles is being written, they're trying to reestablish who Israel is, trying to reestablish where everybody goes as they're coming back into the land. So those genealogies are very important and all the details are very important, whereas the theology is more important uh, and, and where Jesus comes from as far as being king and so forth in the books of Matthew and Luke. So I think that maybe sort of helps explain why you would have um, Sheltiel listed here versus Padiah listed here. If you got some more questions on that, you know, uh, like some more detail on that, I'd be uh, happy to think some more on that. Yeah. Stephen, those are, that's a great response. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, the text doesn't tell us why, but th there's a number of, as you noted, whether it's he's, he's, uh, he's sired by one father and raised by another man. We have a leave right marriage or whatever, we do run into people, we do run into kids that speak of their grandfather as dad. And so th th there, are all sort, there are all sorts of reasons out there, good explanations for why you can have this variance that do not demand a contradiction or a mistake. Good thoughts, you guys. Yeah, I appreciate those things. Uh, if you need more clarification, as Stephen said, email us questions at answeringreligiousair.com or private message us on our Facebook page. Next question. What are the proper stances to pray? The Bible shows various ways. Is it okay to pray while driving or doing some other activity that requires your eyes to be open? What about kneeling? Some religions require in worship and in private. What are your thoughts? I appreciate the uh, question. I think we've gotten this question before, a very similar question. And I do appreciate when we get multiple questions of the same kinds, because it kind of shows what people are out there thinking about. Um, Nick, let's start with you. Let's put you on the spot, see what you have to say. Yeah, uh, so when I 
talk about prayer, I like to go to Nehemiah. Uh, and in Nehemiah chapter 2, you see that Nehemiah is the cupbearer for Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And here he is walking down, and and he is not taking time to, to bow, to, to kneel, or whatever. He is, he is doing his job, yet he is able to pray at the same time. And so we, we find that prayer throughout the scriptures from beginning to end uh, can be executed in many different positions. Uh, it can be done in kneeling. It can be done uh, in uh, when you're doing your day-to-day -day job. Uh, we could be praying while we're driving. Uh, we don't have to close our eyes. There's nothing in the scriptures that demands you to close your eyes when you pray. Now, with my kids, when they when we're supposed to be praying, and they're sitting there wandering their eyes around. I'm going to get on to them because they are purposely distracting themselves. Uh, but we have to be careful that we don't create these traditions of men and make people feel like they are sinning when they are not. Uh, we can pray to God. That's our privilege as being Christians, is being able to have that open communication with him at any time. We are to pray without ceasing. And so uh, one other point, too, that uh, maybe bring up, uh, we, do, do, uh, we do need to be mindful of certain traditions. Uh, because in certain cultures, uh, certain positions may be considered insulting. Uh, and I bring this up because I here in America, when when we're at church, we often stand to pray. Uh, you know, let us stand and say our prayer together. And that's how we show respect in, in our society. But interestingly, I was studying with a, a fellow from Guatemala. And, and when it was time to say the prayer as a as a group, he got down on his knees and and when after the prayer was over, he asked me, he says, how come you don't get on your knees to pray? It was really foreign to him that I would stand to pray and and not kneel on, on, on my knees. And so it was an interesting conversation for us to see that different cultures certainly have different ways of showing respect. And then what we might consider respectful in one culture may be disrespectful in another. So if we find ourselves in an area where a certain uh, gesture is an insult, we need to be aware of that so we don't uh, create confusion or insult those around us. Uh, and so not that it's a sin uh, per se, but we do need to be mindful of what certain positions mean. And so that's that's how I would answer the question about prayer in our positions. I appreciate it. Uh, Terry Ben, go ahead. I think most of the time that you see kneeling take place, which is which is uh, it, it's demanded by certain situations, by certain emotions that you're feeling. For example, when Paul was thinking that he would see the brethren at Ephesus or the uh, Miletus, the elders at Miletus met him at Ephesus. And it says as they were closing out their uh, their communication together that they knelt, that he knelt down. Uh, and and prayed and they cried and they wept. Why? Because sometimes your emotions are so heavy. When Jesus was in the garden, he fell on his face. Uh, I've seen occasions where my emotions were, I mean, what I was going through, what I was dealing with was so heavy that my emotions sent me to the floor. Um, my emotions when I learned that my, my son died sent me to the floor. I wept and I cried and I prayed. Those are emotions that bring you to bring you to your knees. Uh, we're not always in those emotions. And so sometimes you'll see Jesus 
uh, looking up to heaven and giving thanks. That's not an occasion to bow down and kneel. That's an occasion to look up and say, thank you, Lord. Uh, but other times you're experiencing something that brings you to your knees. And that's okay. That's fine, too. But the Bible shows all of those things. So don't, uh, but don't, don't uh, get the idea that there's one posture that the Bible dictates that you do that or it's not an acceptable prayer. No, it, it depends on a lot of different things. And it's not just that there's a Bible command to kneel and therefore we're going to kneel every time. Uh, no, we don't see that in the, the Bible, either Old or New Testaments. You see a variety of postures, and most of them depend on the weight that's going on in the hearts of the individuals at, the, at a certain time. And so that's what dictates posture, not, not some kind of uh, arbitrary command that says you got to kneel every time. Uh, that's not what you find in the scriptures. Mark, go ahead. Yeah, Terry, that's that's a great comment. I, I'm impressed that when the disciples of Jesus came up to him in Luke chapter 11 and about verse 1 and teach us how to pray, that posture was not, he did not start with posture. It, it doesn't it doesn't come up. And it just has always seemed odd to me that if posture was essential, if that was really, really important, that Jesus would have dealt with that. Not only that, but I was kind of just checking the other day, and I think Terry noted this, that at, at the tomb of Lazarus, when Jesus prayed, there's really nothing said about his posture. It just says he raised up his eyes to heaven and prayed. And, and th like, that's not, that's not the focus. We have him kneeling or falling on his face in the garden. But it's just interesting to me that when we do find prayer in the Bible and in the early church, often there's really nothing said about posture of how the people physically, how they were physically were when they prayed. Um, it, it, it was more, they prayed and here was the subject of the prayer. And I think along with Nick, I did run into someone from, I think that part of the world, but I think they had, they, I think they, and this may not have been true of the person Nick encountered, but I ran into someone who really felt that unless you were on your knees, it was not worship. And, and, and so we kind of, kind of went through that. Um, but those are my thoughts, Brian. Hey, appreciate it. And uh, Bella's in the background, so the audience can say hello to her right behind you there. All right. Uh, Brian, did you have any comments on this question? Or are we ready to move on? All right. Next thought question. We, I, I thought I'll save them. Okay. Next question. Uh, we have a similar question. This was a long uh, question that we received or a comment that we received. And so we just boiled it down to this. Please include lifting up our hands in the assembly on the Q&A. Uh, and this uh, has to go with um, where Paul ta speaks about lifting holy hands. He desires men everywhere to lift holy hands there uh, from First Timothy chapter two. So uh, she wants us to comment on this. So let's start with uh, you, Terry Benton. OK, uh, now this is my studied opinion. I do think that there are scriptures in the Old Testament that talk about lifting your hands in prayer. Sometimes it's, it's, it's kind of like uh, I'm opening my hands to you, God. Uh, there are places where they are kind of aimed at the temple. And so it's as if we're turning our attention toward, toward God's place at the temple. So I wouldn't say there's anything wrong with that. 
I'm not, I'm not convinced that first Timothy chapter two, verse eight is specifically in posture. Uh, and, and here's, here's what I'm thinking here on this is that, that, um, it is a prayer posture so far here. Hey, uh, Terry, Terry, you're you're breaking up. Okay. So I'm I'm gonna let you. Uh, I'm gonna call on someone else. Go ahead and, and go out and come back in, and uh, maybe okay. we can fix that because it's hard to hear you. Uh, let's start with uh, you, Brian. Or let's go to you. Can you hear me, Brian? Is everybody breaking up? <laughs> uh, Mark Dunnigan, what you got? <laughs> Well, I think I'm going to go. We're being attacked. We're internet. Yes. Yes. Um, It's it's because of the holy hands, man. That's what it is. All right. Go ahead, Mark. Well, I'm going to go to as soon as he's done with his drink. I know uh, Stephen. I think Stephen has some thoughts here and then I will pop in with Brian. But Stephen, you take over. So let me let me just say a couple things here. I think there's some real irony around this discussion. Because you have, on the one hand, some people who I think are some often dismissive of specific, you know, notions about how we ought to be doing things in very specific uh, ways, command, example, necessary, inference, and so forth, who are actually advocating here for a, a specific instruction being given here in this passage in First Timothy. And then you have people who are typically pretty... Um, you know, pretty stringent on doing things just as the Bible instructs or saying, hold on a minute. So I think there's, there's some irony there that, that deserves some attention, but I would say this, that um, when you look back at Deuteronomy chapter six, God tells the people to bind his word as frontlets between their eyes on their arm, on the, the lintels of the doors of their houses. Now, By the time we get to Jesus, they have taken to actually wearing little boxes on their foreheads, wearing little boxes on their arms that strap all the way down to their hand, and then actually putting little boxes on their doorposts. They call those phylacteries, uh, and Jesus, of course, mentions those. Do you think that what Jesus meant was for you to go wear as clothing, pieces of the law and walk around with those? Of course not. No, what he meant was that you should have the law right here. It should guide the way that you think. You should have the law right here. It should guide the way that you act, which is the way the hand is typically used. And of course, on your house, it should be the foundation of your home. That they took that and literalized it. It's, it really becomes almost an absurdity to watch it. And I think to some degree here, too, uh, there can be a real absurdity where people take this picture of lifting up hands and, and don't pay attention to the holy part and over-literalize, I think, the lifting up hands part. Where what Paul is, is calling for is, you know, we might say, don't lift up hands with blood on them guilty hands, profane hands, but lift up clean hands. That is when you come and pray before God, let it be that you come with, uh, with an innocent heart and innocent hands and not with hypocrisy into the worship of God. Now I'd like to say one more thing. 
I think, and, and Nick alluded to this, we need to be thoughtful about the environments that we are in. Um, worship is not, is, it, when we come together to worship, it is a together, it is a community activity. It is not just me and God. That's you and everybody around you. And there needs to be a sense uh, of thoughtfulness about where we are, the customs of where we are. We think about that with clothing. We think about that with uh, posture and so forth. And so a lot of people, when I hear them arguing either way on this, um, there's a sense of sort of individualism. Like, this is my choice. If, if you are harming by the way that you conduct your body, if you're harming other people's ability to worship God, then I think you're looking at worship the wrong way. That our mindset ought to be with a measure of propriety and modesty and thoughtfulness about those around us as we approach God. And so if I was in an assembly and people were raising up their hands when they pray to God and sing to God, I'm going to raise my hands up. I'm, I'm glad to do that. If I'm in an assembly where I'm the only one doing that and it would distract everyone around me, I'm not going to do that. I don't think that's appropriate. I don't think that's thoughtful and kind and charitable to the people I'm worshiping with. So I think there's a lot of thinking that needs to go into this discussion that maybe is not happening every time this discussion comes up. Great thoughts, brother. Uh, Terry, you were talking and then you started breaking up really bad. Are you better now? I hope I'm better now. Yeah, you you sound great. So start all over. All right. Well, what I would say about the first Timothy two, eight passage is that prayer is the thing that lifts us into holy action. It's not saying, I want you to pray and I want you to lift your hands, but I want you to pray because prayer lifts your hands into holy action. Uh, It's kind of like James chapter uh, four, uh, chapter five, verse 14 says, Uh, call for the elders and let them pray over them, anointing them with oil. Well, that's what prayer does. It it soothes, it anoints with oil. I mean, it's not literally. So he's he's not calling for them to literally anoint with oil. He's saying prayer does that. It anoints with oil this person who is now weak and needs help. And the elders can can come and pray over him anointing him with oil. That's that expression modifies what they're doing when they're praying. And so it is lifting up holy hands is modifying what you do when you're praying. It's not telling you, you pray in this prayer posture. This is your prayer posture. And I want everybody everywhere to pray in this prayer posture. No, I want your prayer to do this, that it, it, it helps you lift up holy hands in service to God and other people. It's like Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verse 12 says, uh, lift up the hands that hang down. Uh, what does he mean? Well, you, you're, you're, you become inactive. We don't want you to be inactive. So what we want to do is get your hands busy doing what you need to be doing in service to God. Lift them up. That is, bring them up into service. Don't let them stay hanging down as if you're so discouraged, you can't do anything for God or his people. So he's saying, get your hands up. He's not saying, get them up in this posture. He's saying, get them up into service to God. So prayer is that. So to make more of it, 
would mean then that to kneel in prayer would be wrong because he specified lifting up hands. Well, that would be, you know, that would be a contradiction. That would mean that you can only lift up your hands in prayer uh, because that's what he desired everywhere. Uh, so it's not a command to me. I don't see it as a command to pray in that posture, but to pray with this result. And the result is you lift up your hands in holy service to God. Those are my thoughts. Right. Uh, Mark. Yeah, I think Terry's last point was very good because the text says, I want men in every place to do this. And yet we do not find this happening among Jesus or the early church in every place. I think it's also, I think it's also very important that um, we don't adopt something that makes us feel superior to other people. You know, that, that it means I'm more spiritual than somebody else. Um, we need to be incredibly careful about that. And then in verse 8, I find the instruction here being given to the men, that the men are the ones that lead the prayer. And it look, it's just kind of interesting in the denominational world, it seems like that the women have kind of taken this over. That's just my thoughts, Brian. I appreciate uh, those things. All right, uh, next question. And the person who sent that in, uh, if you have any more questions on that, please email us. Be sure to help you out there. Uh, why do people say that the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is grace? Is the New Testament not the law of God? It's a good question. Uh, Brian, let's start with you. Yeah, so one of the interesting things to talk about when you talk about the word testament, it's also the same word as covenant. You probably know that. Uh, in the Bible, when we talk about covenants, we're talking about two things that are brought together. The idea of a law or a set of rules or precepts. It could just be one commandment. It could be a whole bunch of them. That's half of what makes up a covenant. The other half of what makes up a covenant is a promise or a reward. Maybe even the word inheritance might fit into that. We bring those two ideas together, and that's a covenant. God says, if you do this, I'll, you know, reciprocate and do that. At the same time, if you don't, you, there's a punishment involved in that. So under the Old Testament or, or the law or the covenant of Moses, the covenant promise was the promised land. The, the law was the law of Moses. Uh, but under the new covenant, the law of Christ is the law. And the reward, we would say, is grace, is God's mercy, is forgiveness of sins, is the inheritance of eternal life. So when a writer might say something simple like, hey, you didn't have grace or, or let's say eternal life of true forgiveness of sins under these prior covenants, you have it in Christ. He's not excluding the law of Christ. He's simply elaborating on the promise or the reward of the covenant of Christ. So uh, our passage we sometimes think about in, in John chapter one, um, I just forgot, verse 17, um, uh, where, yeah, that's it. So where he talks about grace comes, the law comes through Moses, grace comes through Christ. He's not excluding the law of Christ. He's simply making the point that under the covenant of Christ, there's a unique promise. I always like to tell people, hey, let's go through the Old Testament and find me where God says, if you keep the law of Moses, you're guaranteed eternal life. It's Christ that brings that promise to its uh, fullness. It's Christ where the concepts of forgiveness of sins and the, the eternal reward and the inheritance of eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. That's where those promises are found. And that's what the writer means when he says that's what John means when he says that. And that's why it is that we find grace in Christ and not under Moses, under the old promises. The old promises 
didn't have that uh, hope of eternal life. In fact, one of their promises was the new covenant. That, that was one of the things that they looked ahead to was to say one day there'll be another covenant. That's that's Moses's very thing uh, in Deuteronomy to say one day there's going to be somebody else who will, who will finish these things. And so that's one way of answering that question when we consider the Old Testament having law and the New Testament having grace. Lots of times in the New Testament, we're told there's law still, the law of Christ, Galatians 6, 2, uh, various places where we're spoken of the law of Christ. We're still under a law, but we're also, if we're in the covenant of Christ, we're under grace. Now, by the way, let me make one last plug. If you're not in the covenant of Christ, then you're still under the law of Christ. Jesus is the judge of all mankind. You're still accountable to everything Jesus has said, but you don't have the benefit of the advocacy of Christ. First John chapter one and two talks about our, uh, our relationship in that covenant, having the ability to confess our sins and being cleansed of all unrighteousness, having the advocacy of Jesus, first John two and verse one. But that's only if you're in the covenant of Christ. Uh, otherwise, you're still subject to the law of Christ, but without grace, you're utterly condemned. Uh Terry, what you got for us? And you're muted there. There you go. All right. Um, what I was going to say, when it went, winds up saying, is the New Testament not the law of God? It is. Uh, Jeremiah had predicted that God would give a new covenant and he would write his laws. So I know the new covenant involves the law, God writing his laws in their hearts and in their minds. And I know from 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 9, verse 21, that Paul says uh, to those that are without law, I'm, I act like I'm without law, at least I get on their level, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. So we are under law toward Christ. So the New Testament does involve law, but as was pointed out, it's a law of liberty. James chapter one says it's a perfect law of liberty. It liberates us from sin. The Old Testament would not do that. The Old Testament was, and if you if you don't have the Christ, if you're uh, if you're just a if you're a Jew and you don't know Christ yet, and you haven't accepted Christ, then you just have a law, and uh, and you don't have the fulfillment of of the grace it predicted. And if you reject the grace that predicted, then of course you're under you're, you remain under the condemnation of that law. So the New Testament provides us not just law, but it provides us a law that's wrapped around and centered in Jesus Christ. And He pre presents us with more than just law. He pre presents us with the remission of our sins. So the Old Testament. Uh, is law with some prediction of grace that's coming. And the New Testament presents the grace, and that grace gives us the law of Christ as well. Those are my thoughts. Uh, Stephen, we're coming to the end here, but I think, Mark, you're going to be next. Go ahead, Stephen. Have you got, uh, what do we got, about an hour and a half left? Go ahead. We'll, we'll take your voice. <laughs> okay. I'm good to go. Um, I don't know what the audience is, though. All right, so... Let me just say that there's not near enough time to explore this topic thoroughly uh, in, in the time we have left or even in a whole show. Fundamentally, I think there is a vast misunderstanding of grace across the board. Um, I think it is one of the most misunderstood and misused words in the religious world. What are you about to say, Brian? Do you want to uh, pick up with this question 
next week? Because we are going to run yeah. out of time, and you're not going to have time to get through all that. Well, I'm not going all through that. <laughs> um, but but let me just let me just throw this out there, okay? Grace is a reciprocal relationship. That it is a back and forth, and it is not the the fundamental misunderstanding is that grace is something that is done to you and that you are a passive recipient of rather than a participant in. But grace relationships have always until, well, until the Reformation era have always been understood as reciprocal relationships. And uh, that's especially true in first century. That is a, that is a word. Grace was a word that Average Roman citizens would use in their relationships with each other. The word chorus in our New Testament, they would use it in the relationships with each other. And they never had this concept of grace is something that's done to me. And I don't have any responsibilities uh, or, or response back to that. Now, to this question of why is it said the old law is, is uh, the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is grace. I think that one of the misunderstandings we bring that into the New Testament is that when Paul um, rebukes, for instance, in the book of Romans, the, um, the Jews for their understanding under the old law, that they had a picture of the, of the Old Testament only being law. That's their problem. That's not the law's fault. That's their fault. The law absolutely is saturated with grace. And that grace points, of course, to the ultimate provider of that grace, Jesus Christ. But the, but the law itself, the sacrifices provided grace to people who could not find it otherwise. And, and so we, we, we just we make a tragic mistake when we think that the law does not provide that. And then all of a sudden, this new concept that's never before been seen or heard comes onto the scene in the New Testament. No, the New Testament manifests something that's been there the whole time. Jesus manifests something that's been there the whole time. And so grace is a consistent element of who God is. It's there in the Old Testament, and it simply is is fully manifest when we get into the New Testament. So I'm going to stop right there. I do want to pick up there next week. And what I'd like to talk about, if it's okay, if it's okay, I'd like to talk just a little bit about what it, when, when Paul says that you're under grace, you're not under law, but under grace and what that demands of us, because I think people can't even conceive that grace demands something of us, but it absolutely does. So we'll talk, we'll talk about that if that's all right with the host uh, next week. If the money is right. We'll make it happen. <laughs> Mark, uh, finish us off if you if you wanted to. I got one more minute, and then we gotta go. Just great to be on the show. Great comments. Um, I I appreciate the gentlemen here. I appreciate the time they're taking, and also Brian, um, men that are out in the world that are willing to tackle any question, any religious question, are rare. And to the audience, appreciate appreciate these other men. They're not afraid. They're not afraid to tackle any question. Um, and, and they're not holding their cards close to the chest, to their chest, like, well, I really don't want to tell anyone what I believe. And that is very courageous in our culture today. So, Brian, thanks for all the effort that you put into the show and the people behind the scenes. And uh, thanks for years, uh, years ago, letting me come on the show. 
Yeah, I, and I appreciate it. Who who introduced us? It was uh, Joshua Gertler, right? Josh Gertler called me out of the blue one day. Maybe it was 2013, Brian. Yeah, hey, right. I'm on this live show. I can't make it tonight. Can you cover for me? And th yeah. and that that was the beginning. And then we've been stuck with you ever since. You've been stuck with me ever since, yeah. <laughs> All right, brother. I appreciate uh, y'all's comments and uh, wisdom there. I know the audience uh, appreciates that too. We have a we get a lot of people showing grace toward us for the things that we are giving uh, them as, as way of these comments and such. So I appreciate everyone um, being on the show today. For those who are tuning in live, we appreciate uh, you tuning in, appreciate the questions and uh, for the shares that you do uh, when you help us get the word out about the live Bible Q&A. If you do have a Bible question, we go live every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern time. If we did not get to your question today, Lord willing, we will next Wednesday. And you can email us questions at answeringreligiouserror.com or private message us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash answeringreligiouserror. We are also on Twitter. So if you want to reach out to us via Twitter, you can send us a direct message there. And we are on YouTube as well as on podcasts. This show will be loaded up on podcast immediately after. So you can listen to it audio only if you're not able to watch us live. As well as our Tuesday night study, we are currently studying the book of Ecclesiastes. We did chapter 9 last, last night, and so if you are following that series, we encourage you to go ahead and read chapter 10 for this upcoming Tuesday. And you can find that show on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. It'll be uh, live at 8, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch us on the podcast right after. And uh, that will be on all major podcast platforms. Just Search for The Daily Answer or search for Answering Religious Error, and you should be able to find it. We also have The Daily Answer podcast with Mark Dunnigan, Monday through Friday, 5 a.m. Eastern time. Uh, he was on the show today, and so he brings us a, a quick little uh, message there where he just tells stories about his life, about his childhood, and and maybe some current news, whatever things may be going on currently. He just likes to comment on it and put some Bible in there and help to challenge you in your faith. So I appreciate all the work that he does. That's Monday through Friday at 8, at 5 p.m. Or excuse me, I got so many times mixed up in my mind right now, 5 a.m. Eastern time. And that is the Daily Answer podcast that can be found on all podcast platforms. Just search for the Daily Answer and you should be able to find it. We also have Bob's Bible Basics. That's on Mondays. You can find him on Facebook, YouTube at 8 p.m. Eastern time. And then last but not least, a show for women by women, older women likewise, Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern time. They are on Facebook and YouTube live. And then right after the show, you can find them on podcast audio only. And they go live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern time. That's all the time we have for today. Appreciate the questions. We hope that we were able to give you something to chew on for the rest of the week as uh, you get ready to come back next Wednesday, 12 p.m. for our live Bible Q&A. That's all the time we have. God bless.